We've all heard of women's intuition, right? Well, men have intuition as well. Intuition is so important when it comes to feeding ourselves and our families in our challenging food environment. This podcast explores a variety of topics related to a powerful, evidence-based eating framework called intuitive eating that integrates instinct, emotion, and rational thought. My hope is that it will help you finally break free of the perpetual diet cycle. This is the Men's Intuition Podcast. All right, and welcome back to another episode of the Men's Intuition Podcast. I am Jeff Ash, and I'm your host, and I'm glad to be here to talk about another really important topic. So um, previous episodes coming up prior to this one, we're addressing different issues related to individuals. So managing your hunger, those kinds of things, uh, an, an outline of what the intuitive eating framework looks like and how that might apply to you and, and on your own journey. But I'm also really passionate about working with families as well as children and adolescents with their nutrition as well. And so there are going to be episodes that address the specific needs of your kids and, and adolescents, since I think a lot of you listening are probably parents or maybe your grandparents, aunts or uncles, and maybe you're a teacher and you're working with kids, those kinds of things. So those would then also apply to you. But I'm also really passionate about working with entire family units as well. Uh, I think it's a great bonding experience when the entire family is all on board with the same general principles that they're applying to their health and their nutrition and their their mindset around fitness. And so we're also going to have episodes going forward that are going to be addressing family-related issues too. So we're going to try and cover a broad range of different topics that will help you navigate your own personal journey as well as help your family become the best that it can be as well. So today is one of those examples about uh, addressing the needs of your children. So uh, this one, our topic is going to be, I'm concerned about my kids' eating habits. So if you are a parent or a grandparent or anyone who is around children and responsible for their eating, then I think you can probably relate to this. You, You probably have At some point or another, whether it's an ongoing basis or at different times, you've been concerned with their eating habits. So before we get into that topic, though, I do want to add a little disclaimer here that this is just for informational purposes. There are very specific needs that um, some children and adolescents have. It could be an eating disorder or some kind of disordered eating that's leading in that direction. And those kinds of issues may need to be addressed by your pediatrician and or a specialist dietitian in that area. So I do want to encourage you that if you're experiencing any really severe or even borderline severe issues with eating habits and behaviors, or you just have any concerns at all, really, then I would definitely recommend talking to your pediatrician and and going from there and make sure you get the proper guidance and treatment if necessary to to handle those situations. So without any further ado, let's get into our topic. All right. So what are some of these common struggles that we have around food? I I came up with just a few here. There's probably a lot more that you could think of. You may be experiencing some other ones, but I think these these four that I'm going to point out here are pretty common for a lot of us. Uh, First off would be picky or fussy eating. I think that's a really common issue that a lot of families struggle with where, where one or more of your children has a limited number of foods that they will eat. Maybe that's describing you yourself or your spouse or partner. That that could be an issue for them also, but but that can be a real challenge in any kind of a, uh, of a family situation. And maybe that the number of foods are actually not only small, but even decreasing as you're going along. And 
again, going back to that disclaimer at the beginning, if that's occurring, it, it wouldn't be a bad idea to go check with your pediatrician and and just at, at least be evaluated if there are some things that need to be dealt with at a, a much deeper, uh, more intensive level. But I, I don't really like these terms, so be careful when you label yourself or your children in that way. You know, you certainly don't want your kids to to go around thinking they're a picky eater because you're always telling them and reminding them that they're a picky eater, because that can really backfire. It, it sort of uh, manifests itself in uh, in different ways where the kid will say, "Well, I'm just a picky eater, so I'm probably not going to like that. It's a new food. I'm not familiar with it. I'm a picky eater, so I'm not even going to bother trying it." So we don't want to do that. And at the, you know, at the same time, as a parent, we sometimes will say, well, my kid's a picky eater, so I'm not even going to try introducing a new food. I'm just going to give them what they like and make, make things easier. But our job as parents is really to equip our children to thrive when they become an adult. And so anything that we can do to expand their, their food variety is going to be beneficial to them when they're navigating social situations, but also just for health in general. So I encourage you to avoid those labels if at all possible. Uh, the amount of food that they eat could be another concern, whether that's too much or too little. Uh, again, be careful in labeling your kids as like a big eater or a, a, a tiny eater. Just recognize those patterns and then address them as needed. But again, that's a, a common struggle that I think a lot of families experience. And sometimes you have that in conjunction with the picky or fussy eating or these other two, like sneaking or hiding food, another common issue, uh, or kids that are overly obsessed with sweets. So again, sometimes we have one of these issues as kind of a, a factor in our family or with a particular child. Sometimes we have several children, each of them having a different one of these issues, um, or we may have a child with all of these and then some, right? And so how do we deal with those things? Well, our tendency is to institute rules and add pressure to get them to comply with what our eating expectations are for them. Uh, now, this comes from a genuine concern for their health. You know, we, we really do want the best for them. I think most parents, that's ultimately what's at the foundation of what they do and the decisions they make. And, and I'm sure that's the case with you as well. Even, even though I don't know you, I have a strong suspicion that if you're a parent, that's really where, what it comes down to. I mean, that's just that natural instinct that we all have. We want the best for them. We want them to develop good and healthy eating habits that will carry them over and hopefully avoid any issues that maybe we experienced growing up. Uh, often we broadly view this, though, as another discipline issue or a character trait that we need to develop in them. And that's where we can get a little off track when it comes to feeding our children. Food consumption is completely different than other areas of our life that require discipline and character building and that kind of thing. Cleaning your plate or eating your veggies is not a character trait. It's not a moral issue. Failing to do so uh, is not a character flaw or, or even a show of defiance. Now, I'm not saying that our children wouldn't use that in some cases to show defiance, but in general, not eating food, we shouldn't view it in that way because our bodies and the way that we navigate food and the food environment is very different than other areas that are uh, behavioral. So eating is not really a behavioral issue. Now, there are behaviors around it like how you present yourself at the dinner table, manners, how you speak, you say please and thank you, you don't reach across the table and grab things, you don't eat something off of someone else's plate, those kinds of things. Those are, those are customs, social customs will probably look a little different in each family, and those are things that we can, can train and discipline within our children. But the, the act of eating itself is very different. We'll talk more about that here 
to hopefully make some more sense of that. Remember, keep the big picture in mind. Our goal is to grow what um, a wonderful woman named Ellen Satter, who developed the model that we'll be talking about here in a moment, she refers to as competent eating. And I love that way. It's, it basically emphasizes the fact that children are novice eaters and that we want to help them to become competent eaters, uh, intuitive eaters who are comfortable navigating a broad range of environments and, and, and pressure, unfortunately, interferes with this. So that's why we want to avoid that whenever possible. So more often than not, this, this really stems from a concern for the size and shape of their body, right? If we're being completely honest, that's one of our big concerns as parents, right? Usually that concern is that they're going to get fat. If we're being completely honest, <laughs> we're just, we're afraid, oh, I don't want my kid to get fat. And it's totally understandable. You know, maybe they're bigger than the other kids. Uh, you yourself may have some lived experience in this area where you, you've always been in a larger body and you don't want them to go through the stigmatization and comments and bullying, you know, all those kinds of things that you experienced growing up. And so it's out of a concern, again, for your child that you're, that you're wanting to prevent them from having to go through those things, those struggles that you did. Maybe a family friend or a family member made a comment about their weight. A doctor or, or other healthcare practitioner may have made a comment uh, about their, their health and a concern for their health based on their size. Maybe the child's expressed concern about their size themselves and you know, said, hey, I'm, I, I feel like I'm too big. Or maybe some, somebody made a comment to them at school and that kind of thing. You know, our society and our culture, unfortunately, and, and our media have really perpetuated the idea that that there is a uh, acceptable body size and that if you fall outside of that range, you need to fix it. Often it's promoted as health, but more often than not, really, it comes down to society's standards of beauty and what we perceive as an appropriate appearance for people. And so that's really quite unfortunate. And what we want to do is we want to prevent oh, reinforcing that those ideas in our children as they're growing up. So why is this a problem? Why is it a problem that, that we would be fixated on the size and shape of their body or approach health from a size and shape perspective? Well, well, each of us has this kind of genetic blueprint that really dictates in large part how our body will develop. And our bodies tend to maintain their weight within kind of a preferred range. And this is, comes back to something called set point theory, which there's some good evidence for that. And, you know, there's some conflicting opinions on how this works and the mechanisms, but it's something that we tend to observe in, in people is that we tend to maintain this kind of range of body weight and it varies from person to person. And our body does a pretty good job of maintaining that over time, of course, unless there are disruptions that occur. And, and our bodies, as I said, do an amazing job of maintaining it in the absence of these disruptions. So what are these disruptions? Things like trauma, stress, illness, injury, maybe medications. ADHD medications are, are, are something that can significantly impact appetite. And so that's something that, that uh, a lot of parents struggle with when their kids go on that kind of a medication. Pressure in the feeding relationship is another big one. And that's one of the ones we're focusing on today with the model that I'll be unveiling here very shortly. So continue listening. Um, our bodies have the, these mechanisms in place, really, that, that help regulate our food intake and our energy expenditure to, to maintain this kind of range that's ideal for us as a unique individual. Uh, it's often referred to, again, at, like I said, as a set point. There's another theory called settling point. We won't go into details here on those, but these are ways of describing how these mechanisms 
play off of one another. And it's basically how hunger, satiety, and our energy expenditure play off each other and interact with each other. There's no single variable that we can just modify in isolation to affect the change that we might desire. So you can't just say, oh, well, I'm bigger than I want to be, so all I have to do is eat less and or move more. The problem is, is that when you eat less, it impacts your energy expenditure in unforeseen ways often. Likewise, when you add more activity or less activity, it also can impact your energy expenditure further, but it can also impact your appetite. So they, they play off each other in a very significant way. And so it's important that we don't oversimplify these things. It's a very complex kind of a system that goes on inside the body. And that's why we need to be really careful with oversimplifying it, which is what diets tend to do. They tend to say, oh, well, just eat less. That'll get you down to the weight you want. Or just move more. Or a combination, you know, just eat less and move more. And But it is, it's far more complex. And that's just at the physiological level, biological level. Uh, now you start to bring in things like the emotional facets of health and psychological and social and spiritual, economic intellectual, all these other facets of health on top of those biological processes. And now we've even made it much, much more complex. And so as hopefully you're starting to see here that um, we just need to be really careful that we aren't oversimplifying things here. And this is why diets and focused attempts at weight loss uh, or weight change, even gaining also, uh, don't typically work in the long term. And this is demonstrated in numerous, numerous research studies. It's not even really disputed, even among those in the, the diet community, that weight loss efforts typically don't work long term. And that's because we're attacking a symptom rather than looking at the underlying issue that may have driven a, a either an excessive weight gain or excessive weight loss. And so we just need to be careful of that. All right. So what's a great way then to address feeding kids? There are different approaches to this. Uh, I'm pointing out one that it's it's kind of considered the gold standard among a lot of a lot of people. I love this approach. It's something that's been around for a long time. It's called the division of responsibility in feeding. You might see it abbreviated if I'm doing some if I'm communicating something or writing some content on it. You may see me abbreviated as DOR, and you may hear it referred to as DOR, that kind of thing. But this division of responsibility in feeding was developed by a registered dietitian and therapist named Ellen Satter, and it's been around for over 30 years. She developed it a long time ago. It's tried and true. It's been tested. It's been validated by numerous research studies. And what it does is, in summary, basically, this model is the parent provides and the child decides. So again, the parent provides and the child decides. So it's based on this simple principle that regardless of the age, whether you're a newborn or a seasoned citizen, as uh, I'm getting more and more over the years, more seasoned, I guess, uh, the individual is really best at determining the amount that's right for them as an individual. We have thousands of years of human history showing this to be the case. And the biological mechanisms inside our bodies and the cues, these hunger and satiety cues, drive us to eat when we need more energy and to stop when we've had enough. And again, if we don't have those disruptions in place, our body does an amazing job of regulating these things. All right, so let's break this down a little bit further. Uh, so the role, and basically the division of responsibility assigns roles to the parents or other adult feeders and the child. 
So the parent's role is what, where, and when. So that comes back to the providing part, right? The role of the child, this is where a lot of parents get a little scared or start to say, huh? Uh, turn their head like, you know, maybe you have a dog that does that. I have a dog, you start talking to him funny, and right, they turn their head and look kind of crazy. Uh, anyway, the child, their job is whether or if they're going to eat and how much. You may be saying whether or if, like they can decide if they don't want to eat when it's dinner time. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean they don't get to, they don't have to sit at the table. That again comes back to the culture, the discipline, those kinds of things. But the whether and how much, it's really important that we allow our children to make those decisions. I'll go into a little more detail of what that looks like. But that is an incredibly powerful way of helping them to nurture and and even strengthen those biological cues and those hunger and satiety signals that are innate in all of us from the time that we're born. And it's amazing how when we allow them to make those decisions for themselves to decide whether and how much that those, those uh, cues and signals and abilities just develop and carry them over nicely into becoming intuitive eaters when they are adults. All right, so let's look at this at a little bit more detail. All right, so when it comes to the parent and or adult feeders, so adult feeders would be teachers, aunts and uncles, grandparents, anybody who's in charge of the providing part, right? A three-year-old can't go to the grocery store, and so they can't really provide for themselves. So any adult who is responsible for them is going to need to provide for them. So our role as adults is to choose and prepare the food. That's pretty obvious. I don't think there would be any dispute over that. Uh, you know, some, I guess, you know, some parents do let their kids pretty much tell them what they want to eat and they just let them eat it. Probably not the best way to go about getting them a nu nutritionally adequate variety of foods. It's also not going to be really helpful in helping them develop a, a broad range of taste that will carry them again over into adulthood nicely. But our role is first off, choose and prepare the food. We also, this is, comes back to the when part of the, of those roles that I outlined. And that's provide regular, consistent meals and snacks. And so what that means is that what we're doing is we're establishing this trust relationship with our children. When we provide regular and consistent meals and snacks, they can trust that they will always have a meal coming and that at those meal times they're going to have enough to eat so that they're not going to go, go hungry. So they can trust that we're not going to starve them, that we're not going to force them to eat a certain amount of food that's going to make them feel uncomfortable. They're always going to know, though, that those are coming. And so if they're hungry and it's in between meals, they know, hey, I, I know another meal's coming. I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to obsess about it. I don't need to go steal or hide any food, those kinds of things. So it's really important that we nurture that trust relationship. We also, uh, another role is to make meal times uh, pleasant for everyone involved. And this is, again, this comes back to some of those cultural norms and we want the meal time to be enjoyable. We don't want to be. We don't want to use meal time as a time to nag or, or bring up messy family business and that kind of thing. Maybe keep that for another time where you can gather everyone around and deal with those kinds of issues. Um, anything that we can do to make meal times and our our children's mindset around food something positive, something enjoyable something that they can look at fondly when they're an adult rather than, oh, I hated dinner time. That was when mom or dad would nag me about my homework or bring up all those stuff I did wrong, you know, those kinds of things. And, and that happens a lot. And it, if you've experienced that yourself, you can probably think, how, think back to how that 
as carried over into adulthood into your current relationship with food that you may be struggling with. These are also times that we show our child, by example, how to behave at family meal times. And again, this is going to look different for every family. Some families use utensils like uh, chopsticks or forks and knives, and others might use hands more often. Where you put your napkin, some some people may put a napkin over their shirt, some in their lap. Um, you know, is how we drink. Whether there's uh, all those different kinds of variations in the way that families sit at a dinner table and behave at the dinner table, passing things around, not reaching over, all of those things. Uh, those are all things that you will also teach and model at the dinner table. So it's not just about food, but it's also a teaching experience for some of your family cultural norms. Be considerate, though, of your child's lack of food experience. And this is one where I think a lot of parents really struggle, is that it's really easy to fail to realize that our kids, just like they're novices at everything else, they don't know how to do math, they don't know how to tie their shoes, they don't know how to wipe their butt, they don't know how to, you know, all kinds of different things, right? We have to teach them, and it takes time for them to learn that. The same is true for food. They're novices at eating, and so we have to gradually teach them how to eat, how to try different foods, how to be, how to enjoy different kinds of foods and, and different combinations of foods and all of those different things. So in order for them to become a competent eater, we need to understand that they're at this point a novice eater that needs training practice really is, is uh, going to help with that. But we also want to do this without catering to their likes or dislikes. So you're not a short order cook saying, okay, what do you want, Johnny? What do you want, Susie? What do you want? Not that you don't ever do that, but the general rule of thumb is that as the parent, you're going to provide, and then from what you've provided, then each child will decide what they're going to have and how much of that. Uh, this was something that definitely didn't occur to me until I really started digging into the division of responsibility, uh, you know, a number of years back, and um, and th and that was really interesting when I started thinking of it, of children and eating from the perspective of them being novices, needing to learn. And, and when you do, it really shifts the way that you see, you know, when you're seeing them struggling with a food or, or getting upset with a particular food that they're just learning. So, uh, you know, there is some debate on, on this one, but this is another important one that I, I align with this idea, and that is only water between meals and snacks. Uh, think of your, your, your drinks like sugar-sweetened beverages or milk or juice, those kinds of things. Think of them more in terms of being foods because they have calories, they have nutrients, they have nutrition in them. And so we should think of them in the same way. And so by giving our kids just water in between meals, then we allow them to arrive at meals with a certain level of hunger, ready to eat. Uh, and when they do arrive at those meals with a certain level of hunger, not ravenous or anything like that, but it is going to make them, one, they're going to enjoy the meal more. But two, they're also going to be more willing to try a new or unfamiliar food if they're actually hungry. If they're not hungry going into that meal because they've been drinking soda and juice and milk all afternoon, they are probably not going to be likely to really gravitate toward anything that's not completely familiar on the table. And ultimately, what we're trying to do as, as parents and adult feeders is allow our children to grow into the body that's right for them. Not only allow them to, but encourage it and do everything we can to nurture that within them. All right, so when it comes to the role of the child, again, it comes back to this trust relationship. 
So they trust you to provide. They trust you to consistently provide. And I do want to add a caveat there. If you're somebody who struggles with food insecurity for economic reasons, um, I, I hope that this doesn't make you feel bad about that. I mean, we, we all come in at this thing from different perspectives and the and, and provision can be a really, really challenging thing for some parents. Uh, and so just keep in mind that all of this is 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 in the context of provide to the best of your ability and and know that children are pretty resilient in a lot of ways. And and if we're really prioritizing the provision part, then then we're doing the best that we can. So just keep that in mind. So when it comes to the role of the child, then you can trust your child to eat. So, you know, when you provide food for them, they're going to eat. And the reason they're going to eat is because they have a biological drive. And again, if there's not some kind of major disruption in that drive, they're going to eat when we provide for them. So you can confidently trust them to do that. Uh, you can also trust them to eat the amount that they need based on their body's unique energy demands. Uh, and this is going to be based on their physical activity levels for that day. Uh, but it also may be impacted by their physical activity levels over the course of the week. So understand, we sometimes think of, of food and everything on a meal-to-meal -meal basis or on a daily basis, but it's really much more of a cumulative thing. And we see this in research too. You know, we see that when kids uh, don't eat vegetables at a particular meal or for a day, that over the course of the week, they often make up for that by eating a few more vegetables on other days. And so when we look at the big picture, we realize, oh, wow, they actually do have a pretty nutritionally adequate diet. But it's really easy, like I said, to get hung up on that one meal. Oh my gosh, they only ate chicken. They need vegetables. They, they've got to have vegetables. They've got to have some carbs. You know, wh what about the fruit and the bread and these kinds of things? Um, but then if we just chill out, pull back and say, well, what'd they have for breakfast? Well, they had bananas, apples, and berries. Oh, okay. Well, that sort of fills in that gap. Whereas at breakfast, we might think, oh, well, they only had bananas, apples, and berries. They didn't eat any protein. Well, they made up for it later. And it's, it's great because the body has a, has a lot of mechanisms in place, and it does a really good job of managing these things and compensating for these kinds of differences in eating from meal to meal and even from day to day. Uh, you can also be confident that your kids are going to learn to eat the food that your family enjoys. So when you provide these different foods that your family traditionally enjoys without pressure, you can be confident that eventually your kids will, will learn to enjoy those foods. Now, it doesn't happen immediately. Again, they're novice eaters, and they're also each very different. They're different in the way that their taste buds respond. They're going to be different in their likes and dislikes and preferences. And so if we look at some of the research in this area, it's really interesting because it often takes over 30 exposures to a new or unfamiliar food before a child is even willing to eat that food um, you know, in a pressure-free environment. And so it's really interesting that if we just keep trying without adding pressure, no pressure to eat it, just keep presenting that food, that often our quote-unquote picky eaters turn out not to be so picky after all. They just take a little more time to try new things and that's okay. That just, and that may carry over into other areas of their life that we can recognize as well. Oh, they're just not as adventurous. You know, you may have the kid who's like ready to go just full on without even thinking about the consequences and trying new things where you ha may have another kid who wants to watch and ob observe and see how others are, are uh, engaging in that activity or something. And what happens? What's the outcome? If I do this, what is it going to do? And 
the same may be true in the way that they approach food. They may want to watch you eat it a number of times before they say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good to eat that too. The, uh, also, you can rest assured that when you do this, when you trust it, trust your children, you can trust that they'll grow predictably and consistently in ways that are right for them and their unique body. Now, again, disruptions happen. Again, those are things to address with your pediatrician. But in general, when we, when we feed them in this way, we can trust that they'll grow predictably and consistently into the body that's right for them. And, and ultimately, too, throughout this whole process, they're going to learn to behave well at mealtimes, too. Again, that comes back to those, those cultural norms for your unique family. But hopefully that makes some sense there. So again, you can trust your children to eat and eat the amount of food that's right for them. And you don't have to worry about, oh, did they eat enough? Did they not eat enough? Trust that their body will compensate for that later if they ate too much or too little at any particular eating time. In the words of Ellen Satter, again, I love this quote, uh, your job is to maintain the structure of family meals and sit down snacks throughout your child's growing up years. When you do your jobs with feeding, your child will do his with eating. So I did mention sit down snacks there. I should have mentioned that earlier. One of the, the, the where part of this whole equation, the role of the parent, whenever possible, if you can get your kids to separate from the different activities going on in their life and get them to sit down at the table or a picnic blanket or, or just somewhere where that's dedicated to focusing on the act of eating, that can really help as well. It, it takes out those distractions. They know that eating is serious business and that it should be taken seriously because that's something we want to teach them that when it's time to eat, you need to make sure you eat, eat enough that you're satisfied and full because you can't just keep nibbling all afternoon. And they'll learn that over time. And um, so that's one of those things that, that you can trust will happen as well. All right, so let's look at a practical example here. So uh, yeah, if you're like me, you're like, okay, these are cool concepts. I'm starting to wrap my head around it a little bit, but what's it look like? I, I want you to tell me step by step, or at least give me a, a really detailed picture of what this whole thing looks like. So let's talk about uh, tacos. Tacos is a good example. I think a lot of us include those in our meals. And so with tacos, what do we have? We have cheese and meat, tortillas or shells, and or shells, um, tomatoes, salsa, avocado, beans, you know, all these different kinds of ingredients. And this is actually a really good example of a great way to serve your meals whenever possible. When you, if you have kids who are not particularly adventurous with their eating is deconstructing meals into their parts so that each member can add what they want. And they can also try a small amount of something in there and experiment with it a little bit. That can be a great way to help um, provide a really nice, comfortable eating environment. But let's get back to tacos. All right, so uh, they might just eat meat, right? They might just pile on a thing of meat and just eat that, uh, or just cheese and avocado. Uh, or they might just eat five tortillas or shells. I know when I was growing up, there were a lot of times where I just had the, uh, the meat and shells, maybe cheese, but often I would just have the meat and shells. Other times I'd have everything, lettuce, tomato, those kinds of things. I'd never ate avocado until I was almost 40 years old surprisingly. Uh, now I love it. Uh, beans was never a big thing for me, but I also started eating those later in life too. Uh, but that's okay, you know, if they only eat one of those foods, because as I said, we can be confident that other meals will make up for any nutritional deficiencies from that one single meal, one single eating occasion. As Again, it, nutrition doesn't need to be spot on from meal to meal, but research does show that 
kids do tend, and adults too, this carries over into for adults as well, uh, shows that we do get nutritional adequacy over the course of the week. Again, if we aren't putting that pressure on them from meal to meal. So that's an example of how this might look uh, with a taco meal. Now, another one, this would be a new or unfamiliar meal. I mean, I think tacos is one that a lot of us is pretty familiar. Kids are used to it. Maybe there's a new or unfamiliar meal, a new, new recipe you tried. You have no idea if your kids are going to like it or not. And so what you do is that you make sure to provide a couple of safe or familiar foods for your child so they can be confident going into that meal that they'll get enough to eat, regardless of, of whether they like the, the main dish or the sides that you've added in there for th that go along with that, that side dish. When your kids can't trust you to eat or, or that they're going to be able to fill up, then this is where it starts to develop these issues with these hiding foods, sneaking foods, um, outbursts at the dinner table, all kinds of other problems that can come in and, and appear to be discipline related when really it stems back to this pressure to eat unfamiliar foods uh, that may be going on when you, when you serve something that's unfamiliar. So every meal doesn't need to be the favorite of everyone, but everyone should have something that's familiar and comfortable for them to eat in an amount that's gonna let them fill up their belly. So sometimes that may mean that you just put a, a lot of bread and butter on the table and the kid may try the new dish and may decide they don't really like it or they're not really sure so they don't eat very much but then they can fill up on the bread and maybe fruit or, or something else that you that you might include with that but again without catering so it's not okay i have a plate of pizza rolls and hot dogs and then i have the fancy brazilian dish that i cooked for everybody else it, it doesn't mean that you cook two separate meals but just have something there that's going to meet their needs. Maybe it's milk to make sure they get enough protein and you know they'll always drink the milk. And so that provides a protein source if they don't eat the, the new chicken that you're cooked or something like that. So hopefully that's given you some practical ideas there. But in ge the general principle, it's always make sure there's at least a couple of safe foods so they don't ever leave a, a feeding opportunity hungry unless they've done so by choice. And by choice, I don't mean, well, if you don't like it, <laughs> tough, you're going to go hungry. I don't mean that kind of choice, but if they decided there's familiar foods I'm comfortable with, I'm choosing not to eat those because either I'm not hungry or whatever reason, and I'm also not choosing to eat this other food. So I really hope that that makes sense. Um, yeah, we'll go into detail on that kind of stuff later down the line too. Uh, trust is a key factor here. Again, the child trusts that they won't go hungry, and that's ultimately what we need to uh, focus on. So in summary, let's get this thing wrapped up here. The key principles of intuitive eating really help us to recognize and respond appropriately to our internal signals that our bodies give us regarding the amount of food that we eat. On your hunger, feel your fullness, satisfaction in our eating coping with our emotions without food and making peace with food, all of those important principles. And so what we want to do then as parents ultimately is we want to encourage this innate ability in our kids as early as possible. And we also want to nurture it over time so that it really carries them over into adulthood uh, so that they're thoroughly equipped to navigate extremely challenging food environment and, and culture that we all find ourselves living in. So I hope that you found that helpful. Again, this is just a very, very brief overview on the topic. It just kind of laid out some principles here. Gave you a few little examples, specific examples, but there really is so much more to it. So feel free, though, to reach out to me on social media if you have any questions about any of the specifics of this or maybe even a, a specific detail that's going on in your own family. I'm, I'm more than happy to help out. 
Uh, it may be that you might find it helpful to work with me for a period of time just to get some ideas and, and kind of talk through different things and happy to talk to you about that. Um, one thing I do want to point out is I do offer completely free, no obligation, 60-minute initial consultations. So whether it's for you as an individual, your child or adolescent or your, your entire family, I'd love to talk to you and just kind of see where you're at and if I might be able to help you uh, navigate some of those things. So be sure to reach out to me at uh, intuitive.eating.min on Instagram, or you can check me out at my website at hopedrivesme.com, and I'd love to hear from you. So I hope you found this episode helpful. Look forward to talking to you again soon.